0: those who I had the opportunity to hang out with this weekend, you know I like the interaction so thank you, thank you Um my name is Nathan Good uh, as I mentioned and I'm one of the pastors at Summit Crossing Church in Muscle, Alabama and it's been a joy to hang out um, here in Monroe this weekend, this is my first stop in Monroe, I've been through on Highway or Interstate 20 several times before but uh glad to finally be here uh, our churches have have a history together. Um, Son of Crossing by the privilege of helping with uh, the launch of the Crossing about three years ago, and so uh, I've never yet had the opportunity to be here, and so it's been it's been a, a joy um, to come and to, to hang out with y'all. Uh, and I just want to affirm and encourage. This has been an awesome weekend. I've I've loved getting to know um, many of you to hear your heart for the Lord, and, and more specifically, your heart to engage in the mission of making disciples. Um, to to understand your part in God's story, and and so I just want to affirm that in you. And as I'm up here this morning and just have an opportunity to share with you, I, I hope this would be an encouragement to you, um, just to to keep pressing on to the work in which the Lord has called you. Uh, I tend to view life through the through the lens of running because I was a runner growing up. Are there any runners in the room? All right, two. That's 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 not bad. All right, so. Anytime I meet someone who's a runner, I always ask them if they enjoy running, and if they say yes, then I just assume they're a liar by default, all right? That's kind of my default position, because I I spent much of my life uh, running, uh, especially back in school. I I wasn't, I was sort of athletically inclined, but I wasn't coordinated enough for basketball. I wasn't big enough for football. Um, Wrestling was weird to me in Iowa, which is where I grew up, and so the lot for me seemed to be running. And not just any sort of running, but long-distance running is what I spent much of my early life and childhood doing. And so even today, I tend to view life through the lens and the metaphor of running, uh, because that's been just my experience. But I found it to be a really helpful way, because there's been many instances, many stories, many experiences in my own journey that have really resonated with life, and particularly with what it looks like to follow Christ. Uh, and so there's, there's always those stories, those moments that, that mark you, right? And there was one particular instance, my, my junior year of high school, I was running cross country, uh, which is kind of the outdoor running, uh, hills, you know, uh, grass, you know, nature, all that fun stuff. And uh, this particular year, I was running, I was on our varsity team. And, and here's, how, here's how cross country works, at least in the state of Iowa. I don't know how it is in Louisiana. But in cross country, at the varsity level, you get seven runners on a team. All right, seven runners. Now when you compete in a, comp- in, a, in, a, in a meet, it's sort of like an individual and team event. So each runner's competing individually, but you, you pool together the scores of the top five runners and whoever's got the lowest score, that team wins the competition. So it's sort of team and individual. So if you're doing math right there, there's seven runners on the team and only five runners actually score, you know, their, their position contributes to the final result. I was like a number six, number seven runner which is the sweetest place to be in cross-country, right? Like, you you get to be on the varsity team, but it doesn't really matter what you do, right? Very, very low expectations. Uh, That was sort of my lot in life, and I was totally, totally content with that. Um, But there was one particular race my junior year of high school where you know where it was actually the the conference meet and we kind of get up there we get on the starting line this is what we've done over and over and over again this is nothing unusual and and I remember getting on that starting line if you've ever seen a cross-country starting line it's sheer chaos right it's like a hundred and some guys like packed into the like the, the tiniest place you can imagine the starter comes up fires a pistol and it's just chaos right all these people taking off and sprinting. And on that particular day, I remember the the, the the starter fires the pistol. We all take off. We all start running. And it was just one of those days where it just felt good, right? Like sometimes it just it clicks just a little bit more than others, and so I get out of the starting line. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling a good start. The adrenaline's flowing. I can tell my pace is good, and so I'm going. I'm borderline enjoying running, right? That's how good it was. I was almost enjoying the experience, and so we're running. We start going, and And I'm just feeling good. And so I remember kind of pressing on. And and at about every mile, there was usually a timer that would kind of show you where you're at. And my cross-country coach would always run back and forth between the mile markers to sort of encourage slash yell at his team and and give them updates on what's going on. And I remember approaching that first mile marker. And I'm looking up at the time. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but it wasn't bad for me. I was like, all right. All right. This this is a decent this is a decent start to this race right and so my coach is there and he, he yells hey Jewett, right because that's my last name that's what everybody knew me as and so he, he gets my attention and he's like it's going to be a close race I'm like well duh coach and I was like thank you for that thank you for that update right it's going to be a it's always a close race right that that's running um, but so he, he just he's yelling that and I'm taking that to mind and I just I keep going right keep running keep running keep running. So I go past the first mile marker, keep running, keep running, this is long distance running, that's what it is. And I remember approaching that second mile marker, and there's Coach again. Hey, do it! Okay, yeah, Coach, what's up? He's like, it's really going to be a close race. I'm like, okay, uh, that's cool, that's cool. And then he goes on and he makes this statement. He says, it might come down to the fifth. Alright, it might come down to the fifth, is what he yelled now, I had mentioned just a second ago of how you scored a race in cross-country is you take the score or the placements of the first five runners, combine them together, and the lowest total score wins. Now, in, in most races, if you've got a couple studs on your team, they can carry the team by just placing really, really high. But in close competitions, where the competition is fierce, you can get a meet that's so tight. That's so narrow that the first, the second, the third, and the fourth runners, their scores almost cancel out because it's so tight. And in those cases, and in those unique circumstances, it comes down to that fifth runner, the last one to score for the team, whether or not they will get enough or be low enough in the scoring to push their team over the edge. Does that make sense? And so I'm thinking, you know, all right, am I come down to the fifth? And then I'll look around and I'm thinking, well, where are the runners on my team right now? I'm a historic 6'7 runner. I mean, that's my spot on the team. That's where I live. And all of a sudden, I realized that when I took off, I remember kind of passing some of my guys. I was like, going through my mind, checking guys off the list, who's ahead of me, who's behind me. And all of a sudden, I come to this horrible realization. (laughs) I am currently the fifth runner for our team. (laughs) This is an entirely new experience for me, Right? I was not prepared for this in this particular day. And so I'm like, all right, it's okay. It's cool. It's just, you know, we're, we're, we're just two miles into the race. I've got time. Hopefully one of the guys on my team will pass me and I won't have to worry about them, right? <laughs> so, so keep running, right? Keep going, keep going, keep pressing on, And eventually start r- rounding to the, to the third mile marker. And in a five kilometer race, it's like 3.2 miles. So when you're approaching the third mile marker, you're, you're getting near the end. And, and there's my coach again. Hey, Jewett, it's going to be close. Right? It's going to be close. And so I remember passing that third mile marker, and then we, there was this long kind of sweeping turn that, that then opened up into the, the home stretch, right, to the final, final stretch of the race. And I remember as I'm going around that corner that, that in my peripheral vision, I just start to catch in, in, in my view, right, this other runner coming up behind me. And I see the gold and the blue of his uniform. And I know for certain that this is a runner from our rival school, right? Benton Community. You see how this is playing up, right? Like, I know in my mind, I'm like, there's just no doubt. I'm like, he's with Benton Community. He's their fifth runner. This, is, uh, this, this might be the race right here, right? It's going to be close. And so we're coming around this corner. I see him in my peripheral vision. And, and in my mind, as we open up into this home stretch, I'm thinking about all the things that I'm supposed to do right now. I have at this point been running competitively for like five or six years. I've received tons of coaching. I have been drilled in situational awareness. What do you do in this circumstance? And I know that all of my coaching said that I need to look forward to fix my eyes on the finish line and to run as hard as I can to finish my race. And as we started into that home stretch, right? There's this big dramatic kind of funnel with those little circus flag things that sort of taper in. And there's people on the side and they're yelling and they're screaming. And we're, we're entering into that final shoot is what we called it, that final finish. And I all of a sudden became very vividly aware that there was someone behind me, right? I started to hear the footsteps. Start to hear the breathing as that runner closed in right behind me. And in my mind, all of my training is going through. I'm like, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. Look ahead, run my race, finish what the Lord has called me to do, or what the coach has called me to do, right? Like it's getting spiritual, right? And do you know what I did instead? I took a look. I couldn't help it. I took a look at the guy behind me. I had to see what was behind me. Now, it wasn't quite as bad as me completely falling on my face, right? But in that moment, when I looked back, I suddenly became vividly aware of how tired I was. My legs felt like they were filled with lead. My lungs were burning and screaming for oxygen. And in those last probably couple hundred meters of that race, it seemed like almost like a slow motion movie as I watched that runner go right around me and finish just two seconds ahead. I've never forgot that race. A little bit later in that day, we were doing the awards ceremony, and sure enough, Benton Community beat my school by one point. At the very last second, the fifths switched, and it cost... Top Star team, the me. Now I've never forgotten that race. It, it stuck with me to this very day because in that moment I realized that that when I look back, I completely lost sight of what I was trying to accomplish. Um, this race has stuck with me because in so many ways that race, that experience has mirrored my pursuit of following Christ. There have been times where I'm running and trying and striving, but then you get tired, you become aware of what's going on, you tend to look back, and it's just so easy to take your foot off the gas. It's so easy to begin to slow down. And, and I love this picture, I love this story, because it reminds me of, of the book of Hebrews. And so if you've got Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to head that direction. That's where we're going to be camping out today. Um, but I think, the, I think the recipients of the book of Hebrews would have related to my story. I like to think that. Because this is a unique book. Uh, most of our New Testament letters were written to a particular church or maybe a particular person. They were, they were very focused and kind of narrow in their, uh, in their audience. But the book of Hebrews is different than that. The book of Hebrews was just written broadly to, to a bunch of believers scattered all throughout much of Asia and Eastern Europe. And it was written to believers who had been running for a long time. Uh, when, when Jesus came on this earth and had his, his ministry, then he was betrayed and crucified on the cross. When he rose again, there was a, a small band of disciples that were meeting in an upper room in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit came and, and empowered them, they went out and literally changed the world. Right? There was this incredible explosion of, of the, the early church where it grew and it flourished It jumped from town to town. And there was this excitement in that day where, where the, the Christian faith, this, this young faith, the way as they were known, just exploded into cities and towns and villages all throughout the world. And there was an excitement, I think. There were many Jewish believers that were coming to faith, understanding Christ as the long-awaited Messiah. And they heard this good news and they received it with joy. They were excited. They were on fire. And there was uh, an initial excitement. I don't know if you've ever been a part of that or experienced kind of that newness. Uh, And and so they, they ran hard. They followed Jesus. They pressed into community. They went. They ran. They sprinted. They gave it all they had. But then time continued to go on. And it just kept going. And life slowly began to wear these people down. And over the years, as different challenges and as opposition and as persecution came by, as suffering was introduced into the life of the church, they began to lose that zeal. Right? They began to lose that, that drive that had so characterized them in those early years. And so they began to just, man, they began to look back. They began to, to look back to, to what they had done before. They began to look around to, to the other people around them. They, they began to just lose sight of, of who they were and of what they were being called to accomplish. And so God in his sovereignty chose some man or some woman that we don't even know who it is to pen this letter um, that we know as the book of the Hebrews. And it wasn't written to one church or one person in particular, but it was written to all of these believers, these tired believers, these, these struggling believers Um, all throughout the land as a way to encourage them and to remind them what this was all about. And so if there is one theme or one central message in the book of Hebrews, it is this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And you don't have to get very far into this letter to see that point. Look at chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is how the author of Hebrews begins. He says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed as the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power." And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's an introduction, isn't it? The author of Hebrews says, hey, I know you're tired. I know you're struggling. I know you feel weak. I know you're turning and looking away. But I want to remind you, Jesus is better. He's better than whatever your eyes are drifting toward right now. He's better than whatever your heart is inclined to pursue in this moment. Jesus is better. And then he goes on for the next ten chapters of this book to just make case after case after case of why Jesus is better. And so in chapters one and two, he says, Jesus is better than the angels. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I understand that. But Jesus is better. As you get into chapters three and four, Jesus says, or excuse me, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is better than Moses. This guy who is the the foundation of the Old Covenant, of your way of understanding life and the law of the Lord. Jesus is far superior to Moses. He goes on in chapters 5, 6, and 7. He says Jesus is the better high priest. He's the better intercessor. He's the better mediator between man and God. In chapters 8 and 9, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus ushered in a new and better covenant. Not a covenant of law and of works, but a covenant of grace that is built upon the blood of the sacrifice of Christ and his victorious resurrection from the dead. And then you get into chapter 10, and the author makes this case, that Jesus offers the better sacrifice. Rather than a perpetual system of of sacrificing for every single sin, he says Jesus had one sacrifice, once and for all, that would cover all sins for all time. It is, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And then you get to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is actually maybe my favorite chapter of of the book. Um, This is where he goes from arguing that Jesus is better to demonstrating that Jesus is better through illustration. Uh, This chapter is often known as the roll call of the faithful. It's like the hall of fame for biblical characters, right? That's how I I often thought of it when I was a kid. Uh, There's a really famous verse at the beginning of chapter 11 where the author of Hebrews points to the centrality of faith. He says, now faith... Is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. And then he goes on, he said, let me give you some examples. Let me give you some examples of what this looks like. And he goes through and he talks about how Moses was pursued the Lord through faith. How Abraham was demonstrated faithfulness in God. He went on through King David and all these characters that, that leap off the pages of our Old Testament. And he says that they faced hardship, they faced trials, they faced challenges, but they held on to the hope that God was faithful to His people and they endured. They pressed on. They kept going. And so the author of Hebrews makes this long, um, kind of, I mean, passionate plea is how I read this letter. Jesus is better. God is faithful. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 12, which is really where I want us to camp out here today. And chapter 12, I think, is the apex. It's the climax of the letter. For 11 chapters, this author has been making this case that Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And now he turns to his audience, he turns to his readers, and he says, therefore, here's what we're going to do. So let's read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's this incredible climax to the letter. He's saying, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. You finally get to Hebrews chapter 12. And it's the, therefore, I've been saying all these things to bring you to this point. To call you to this point of action. And what is it that he calls them to do? Therefore, he says, let us. If you were to dive into this passage and if you were to look at the the, the language and the way he constructs this, this little phrase, this imperative, let us run, is is the central verb. It's the driving force of this passage. He's saying, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. There are many examples all around us of men and women who have been faithful to pursue him. He says, now to you, I know you're tired. I know you're struggling. But let us run. Let us run don't look back, don't turn away, don't get distracted. Let us run. But it's not just any type of running that this particular author has in mind. He says, let us run the race that's been set before us. Let us run the race that's been set before us. This is is helpful for us to realize because a lot of times when we hear running, we, we think of running and we have a picture that jumps in our mind. It might be running circles on a track, Might be a casual jog through the park, might be a cross-country race, could be some crazy marathoner, right? Like, we in our minds have some picture of, of, of what this looks like. But he doesn't say, hey, just run however you think you should run. He says, no, 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 run the race that's been set before you. Run the race. This word race is a fascinating word. There are, like in any language, you can pick a variety of words to kind of convey your meaning. There were words in Greek that this author could have used that meant like race, like let's go run around a track together. Could have chose a word that meant that. This word, though, that he uses right here as race, this word is never translated as race again in the New Testament. Never. This is the only time it's translated that way. In other examples, in Philippians 1.30, this word is translated as conflict. In 1 Timothy 6, it's translated as fight. In Colossians chapter 2, it's translated as struggle. This is not your typical, let's go run around the track and see who can do it faster type of race. This word has a long History um, back in, in those days, the, this word that was translated "race" uh, originally had to do with uh, with with the Roman Colosseum, right? It, it was a word that was associated with with the Colosseum and with the contests that took place there. Has anyone seen the movie Gladiator? Right, the 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 race was what was taking place inside the Colosseum. This is the type of word that the author of Hebrews is drawing to mind here when he says, "Let us." run. He is talking about running a race that takes all of life. A race that comes with high costs. A race that is not easy. A race that is not short. A race that that depends on our very lives themselves. But it is a race worth running. And the author would turn to his audience, and I believe uh, he would even turn to us today and say, there is a race set before you that God has has placed this race before you and he's called you, he's called me to run our race and to take our part in this great struggle. It is no accident that God has put you on this path and called you to this purpose. So it's a hard race, obviously, which is why I think we see in the text that he doesn't say, hey, just run however you feel. He says, run with," with what? Endurance. Run with endurance, the race that's set before you. Run with perseverance, the race that's set before you. You don't tell someone to run with endurance unless they're going to need endurance, right? Like This isn't just like a, a second thought type thing that was thrown in there. Like the author knows exactly what he's talking about here. He knows what he's, what he's calling these people toward. He's saying that this is a hard race. This is a long race. This is a tough race. And it's going to take endurance if we're going to finish well. So how, then, do we run with endurance the race set before us? That's really the question th- that I would love to answer uh, this morning. And I think the author helps us out. He doesn't leave us hanging here. But, but in, in the context of life, in the challenge, in the, in the temptation to look back and to slow down, how do we run with endurance? How do we w- run well the race that the Lord's set before us? So I think we see two, um, two clues of how to do that in this text. So two ways to run with endurance well. And so the, the first one I think we see is that the author of Hebrews would, would, would encourage us to lighten up. Right? To lighten up. And I don't mean like just have a good time lighten up, but to, to like get rid of the weight. Right? To, to lighten up. And we see that in verse 1. He says, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Part of running this race well is, is lightening up. Is getting rid of the stuff. All right. and, and this is, uh, th- there's two elements of that in, in the text. He says, get rid of the, the sin which clings so closely and lay aside every weight. All right? Now, people have debated in the past, is that, is that he's just saying the same thing there or those two different things? I, I would make the case that there's, there's two, two things that the author's pushing at here. Uh, let's take the sin first because uh, this is church, so um, sin is bad. We we would probably agree on that. There's probably some consensus there that that sin is anything that is in opposition to the will and purpose of God in, in this world and in our lives. And if we're to run well, sin, there is nothing that brings us down or holds us back from running the race that God has called us more so than sin. It is something that we must, in our efforts to run, we must put sin to death. We must fight, we must wage war against the sin in our hearts, in our flesh. This propensity to chase after the things that that our flesh desires. And so I think the author turns and he says, hey, we've got to work hard, labor well to put sin to death. But that's, it's challenging, right? I don't know about you, but I don't want to put my sin to death. I don't. Um, A lot of times I want to, I want to just kind of pretend my sin's not there, right? Maybe ignore it think that if I just don't pay attention to it, maybe it'll go away by itself. Sometimes we try to tame our sin or control it, you know, put, it put it under control, put it in certain confines, or I put it in a box that, that we can keep under, under wraps. Sometimes we just deny that it even exists. But when sin takes root in our hearts, when sin has a presence and a foothold in our lives, then it begins to slow us down. It entangles us. It keeps us from pursuing and running the race that the Lord has set before us. And so sin must be put to death. And I think we need to take radical steps to do that. That's why I love here at the crossing the, the, the pursuit of living life in community, of really getting to know one another and to be known by one another. It is in the context of, of pursuing Christ in community, I believe, that we see the, the roots of sin begin to be extracted from our lives. Because I don't know about you, if you've ever tried to fight the battle against sin by yourself, it's just, man, that's a, that's a tiring journey, isn't it? Isn't that just a vicious circle? But God in His grace gives us the community of faith so that we can know one another and press one another forward, to hold one another accountable, to encourage and admonish as needed, as we seek to to remove sin and fight against it in this race in which the Lord is calling us. And so I think there's just a good question for us to ask is, hey, Lord, what, what sin, what sin is taking root in my heart right now? What sin has entrenched itself in my, in my person? And, and what steps might I take to begin to wage war against this sin? Not by the power of my own strength, but in, in the power that Christ has supplied through his Holy Spirit inside me. So let us, let us lighten up by getting rid of sin. But there's, but there's also that interesting phrase, let us lay aside every weight. And this is the one that I think really captures my attention. Because in the church it's not uncommon for us to talk about putting sin to death. But a lot of times we don't talk about the weight. So, what is the difference between weight and sin? I would say it this way. There are some things in this world that are not wrong in and of themselves. They are not evil, they're not bad, they're they're they'd say they're morally neutral. Does that make sense? These things exist in the world. Many of them are gifts of God to his creation. But in the context of running the race, these things become nothing to us but extra dead weight. Uh, I think of another story of running, Uh, I mentioned I'm from Iowa, so it's cold in Iowa needless to say uh, and the cross-country season was a fall sport and so sometimes toward the end of the season the weather would not be very cooperative with us and there was one particular race where we had a storm blow in uh, like the night before and all of us are praying that the the meat gets canceled nope not at all so there's like a foot of snow gets dumped on the on the course so they go out there with like snow blowers and, and snow blow the course for us so we can see where we're going and it's just the temperatures plummeted it's frigid it's like the most miserable running conditions you can possibly conceive but hey, it's Iowa, so off we are to run again, right? And so I remember standing on the starting line of that particular race, and we're packed in there like cattle, um, you know, just, just waiting for the race to start, and we are like bundled up. I mean, I've got got my sweatpants on, a sweatshirt, like a pullover jacket. I've got mittens, not gloves because it's serious out, right? Like mittens on, I mean a hat, I mean hood is up. I mean, we are just totally bundled up trying to protect ourselves from the elements. And I remember the starter getting up to the line. And I'm not unique in this. I mean, we are, it's a bunch of Eskimos on the line is what it looks like, right? We're just, we're totally bundled up. And the starter gets up there and he calls the runners to start getting ready. I remember looking we're looking around like, no way. There's no way I'm getting rid of all this stuff. I'm freezing cold right now. And so the starter doesn't care, right? So he lets lets us get ready and eventually says, runner's to your mark. And then he goes and he fires his pistol. And so we all start taking off, bundled up and all. And I remember that race starting. And it took less than two minutes before we went from freezing cold to absolutely burning up. And it became one of the most comical sights I've ever seen because there was like a hundred guys trying to strip off every layer of clothing while they're running the race. And so all of a sudden, the, the, the race route just has like, there's like pants and sweatshirts and gloves and hazards being like strewn all over. And so our other, you know, the J-Royers the, are trying to come behind and catch all of our gear as we're chucking it off. And it was just like, it was the most comical scene I think I ever remember seeing on the, on the course. Now here would be my question. Are sweatpants evil? Anybody want to make a case for evil (laughs) sweatpants? Right? Is there anything wrong with mittens? No. There's nothing wrong with these things. There is actually a very good and right purpose to these things. But in the context of the race that we were trying to run that day, those things became to us nothing but extra weight. Nothing but extra weight. And I believe when we think through this race that the Lord has called us to run, there are many things that you can't point to them and say, that's evil or that's wrong. But in the context of the race that we've been called to run, these things become to us nothing but weight. And they hold us back, they drag us down, they turn our eyes from that which matters most. I know in my own life I've experienced this. I mean in many ways but there's been certain seasons where it became very pronounced I was, I was a video gamer growing up like all through high school and into college like that was just one thing that this, and here's the deal I'll make this case right now video games are not wrong Not evil. I'm not making a case in any way that video games are evil. But over time, I began to see that those things continued to consume me, to consume more and more and more. And we got to the point, I got to the point in my life, and my wife really helped speak into this point in my life, right? Where where video games were, they were just owning me. They were beginning to just consume my thoughts and all these things. And so I had to come to this point where I had to decide, do I want to keep running or do I want to keep pursuing this? And so for me, I had to set those aside. I just, just, in my life, they became to me a weight, an incredible hindrance in what the Lord is calling me to pursue. And then several years later, the same thing sort of happened with with sports, following sports. It's really easy to get sucked into the world of ESPN and and checking scores and fantasy leagues and all those things. And got to a point where, again, sports aren't wrong. I love sports. Uh, But I had to pull away and extract myself because they were beginning to, to weigh me down. To distract me from the race the Lord has called me to. And, and, and I don't know what that looks like going forward. For, for video games, they've never been able to come back in my life. I still have no self-control. You put video games in front of me, I'm right back to hindrance and being weighted down. God is gracious to allow sports to come back into my life. And I can enjoy them again in a way that, that, that doesn't distract me. And so it's being very sensitive to, to Holy Spirit. What would you have me to do so I can run most faithfully and most effectively in this race that you've called me to? And for us to have the willingness to say, God, if this is weighing me down, I desire Christ more, and I'm willing to set it aside. I'm willing to lay it aside so that I can run the race that you've called me. So I believe this first way for us to run the race with endurance is to lighten up, to lay aside the weight, to lay aside the sin, to wage war against these things in our lives so that we might run with endurance. So lighten up. The second thing that I believe the author of Hebrews encourages us to do is not only to lighten up, but it's to look ahead. Look ahead. And we see this in verse 2. I love verse 2. I'm actually going to back up and, just, and read up to verse 2, though. He says, therefore, since we've been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus. If you have the NIV, this is one of the cases uh, that the NIV, I think, has a better translation than the ESV. Uh, It says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's That's a good translation. That's a good description, I believe, of what the author is talking about. He's saying that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to direct our attention without distraction on Jesus. We need to look ahead. Why is looking ahead important? I think this is just a general principle in life. Um, wherever your eyes go, you follow. All right? Wherever your eyes go, you follow. This is most evident for me in driving. Right? I'm a distracted driver. I love to look around and see what's going on and read signs and things like that. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, but you know, I'll be driving and all of a sudden I'll see something. I'm looking over and all of a sudden the car is just following. Right. Like it's, it's where your eyes go, you follow. That's a physical representation in driving, but I believe in a very real way this is true, not with our physical eyes necessarily, but with the eyes of the heart. What you fix your eyes on, what you fix your heart on, what you set your affections on, you follow. Our belief, our heart informs our behavior. The behavior always follows our heart, right? And so this is just a general principle I think we see in life. And so the author of Hebrews appeals to this here. And he says that if we are to run, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to look to Jesus. The same Jesus that he's been arguing for for 11 chapters. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now look to him. Look to him. Fix your eyes on him. Run to him. And then as he continues to talk about Jesus here, we see Jesus as as our Savior. He describes him as the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the beginning and the end. He's the one that makes this possible. He's the great initiator, the great pursuer, the great redeemer. He is the one who has reconciled us. He's the one that made this race even possible in the first place through his perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect sacrifice and his victorious resurrection. And even now he calls these Runners, cause these believers, cause these, these Hebrews to run after Jesus, to look to Jesus, because He is the one who has saved them. He is the one who made that great promise in Matthew 28 Behold, I will be with you always. Always. He is the one who is faithful to complete what He set out to do. Paul says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful. To bring it to completion. The author of Hebrews points to that Jesus. He says he's the author. He's the perfecter. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. Look to him. Look to him. He's your savior. But he's not only our savior. We also see here in Hebrews 12 that he is our example. Uh, He says look to Jesus. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He says, look to Jesus, and you see the perfect example of what it looks like to run the race well. What it looks like to run and to not look back, what it looks like to run with perseverance and endurance, even to the point of death. He is the great example of what it looks like to run and to run well. He's our Savior. He's our example. But also, and don't miss this one. We see Jesus as our reward. We see Jesus as the reward. He is described here as now being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is our Savior. He is our example. He's the reward as well. When we finish the race of life, what awaits us at that finish line is not riches. It is not acclaim. It is not celebrity. It's Jesus. He's the reward. He's the goal. He's the object. He's the great prize for which we strive, for which we endure, to which we run. And so the author of Hebrews says, if we want to run with endurance, we need to fix our eyes on him. Fix our eyes on him. How do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Um, There are so many ways in which we do this. but, But I believe that we have to take intentional steps of redirecting our gaze. Because we are a distracted people. I'm a distracted person. Every single day, I wake up wanting to look at something else. Every single day I wake up with my heart inclined to pursue and to fix its affections on something other than Jesus. To pursue the things of the flesh. To pursue success in my job or or in ministry. To pursue relationships or whatever it might be. We are a distracted people who are constantly looking to attach our eyes and our hearts on other things. And so if we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, then we have to take intentional steps of, of reorienting our gaze daily to look at Jesus to behold Jesus, to, to remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us. This is why I'm such an advocate for community Bible reading, and I'm, I'm so encouraged that the crossing is starting to participate in that. It's been a blessing for our church just to begin to rally together around the Word of God, not because reading every day makes you a better Christian. It doesn't. Right? There's no special formula for how many minutes you put into the Bible and, and how holy you'll be as a result. But there's something about waking up each day and reorienting our minds and our hearts around the Word of God and looking there specifically for the purpose of seeing Jesus in all of Scripture. And to share that with one another and to press one another on. So even on days where I wake up and I'm distracted, somebody else speaks into my life and says, Hey, I saw Jesus in this way today. And to be reminded over and over and over again because I'm a forgetful person. I'm a forgetful person. So to look to Jesus, to see him in his word, to to pursue him in prayer. I mean, these disciplines aren't aren't things that we have to do. They're they're things we get to do so that we can see Jesus more. To chase after Jesus, to to long for Jesus, and to pursue him through prayer, through community, through, through the word. How can we look to Jesus, to fix our eyes on him, to look ahead? So if we're going to run well, lighten up and look ahead. I skipped a part of the passage in in verse 1. At the very beginning of this text, the author says that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I never understood that phrase when I was back in high school, uh, when I first kind of discovered this text. And I resonated with this passage because it was a running text and I was a runner and all that. And so I would read these cloud of witnesses and I always thought it was like my the people around me, right? Like my classmates, like, oh, in light of this, these people, these witnesses all around me, I, I need to run this race. Well... There's probably some truth to that, but that's, that's not what the author of Hebrews is pointing to here. He's pointing just right back to chapter 11. We just went through this incredible roll call of the faithful. All these examples of men and women who have pursued God in faith, and the Lord has proven faithful to them. The author here says in chapter 12, Therefore, we are surrounded by this incredible cloud of witnesses. These countless men and women who testify that Jesus is better. That God is faithful. And I had this picture in my mind of this cloud of witnesses of like the Olympic marathon. I don't know if you've ever watched it before. It's a boring race, I admit, in watching. But the end is great, right? At the very end of the marathon, the the runners, they, they come into the Olympic stadium usually. And it's usually filled with people. And so I picture those runners coming onto the track and just row after row, myriads of myriads of people just shouting out, cheering them on, saying, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He is faithful. He is faithful. Keep running. I imagine that if we were to find ourselves on that track, those, that cloud of witnesses surrounding us, we would hear them say things like, I know there's times you want to quit. I know there's times where it just doesn't seem to be worth it. I know there's times where you just want to slow down and you want to take it easy. I know there's times where you don't think you can take another step. I know there's times where you've fallen and you're not sure if you can get up. I know there's times where where you don't know if you want to press on. But they would say, but I promise you can finish the race because he is faithful. You can finish the race because he is faithful. And just like these readers long ago, I believe that today the Lord has placed a race before each and every one of us. He has called us, he has invited us, he has equipped us to run this race, to run your race with endurance, to to lighten up, to look ahead. Because there is a day coming. There's a day coming when, when our breath will fail us, where your heart will beat no more. And on that day, your race will come to an end. Will will you will will I will we join that cloud of witnesses? Will we find our voice caught up in the multitude, crying out, "Jesus is better. God is faithful." Will we run our race? Well, will we run? Let me pray for us, Father God. I thank you for the grace. That you have shown us in Christ, and for the incredible invitation that you have given us to run the race of life. Father, you have been so faithful to us. And, and Lord, so we just we join our hearts even here today to, to express gratitude for this grace shown to us. And, and Holy Spirit, I pray for the ability to run. Well, there are many days when I don't want to run, I don't want to run at all. So we need. We need you just as much today as we did on the day we were first saved. And Jesus, we are just as dependent on your work now as we have ever been or will ever be. But we can trust you. You are faithful to your people. So Lord, help us to remember. Give us a certain of clarity of what it looks like to take those steps. Of the things that we need to let go of. Of the ways we need to reorient our attention and our, our gaze. So that we might see you, Jesus. We might run for you? Because we want you, Jesus. We want you more than anything in this world. We want you. If everything else faded away and we get you, we are among the most blessed of all people. Mm-hmm. Lord, may that be the reality of our lives. May that be the reality of our lives. And may you begin and continue that good work in us. Mm-hmm. We ask and pray. In Christ's name. Mm-hmm. Amen. So,